and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome back to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Brian Last, and of course, it's my pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history, sharing with us his tales, his family's tales, and the history of wrestling in the South as only the Tennessee Stud can tell it. But without any further ado, the man of the hour, the host of the Studcast, the legendary Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how are you? I'm doing great, Brian. Uh, pleasure to be here as always. And I uh, think we got a great program today. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. And uh, uh, we're going to end up in a kind of a strange position, something unusual for us at the end of it, maybe. But uh, uh, I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, great information in this, in this particular study cast. I'm looking forward to it, too. If you think it's going to be unusual, that's saying something because we've dealt with so many unusual topics in the history of the Studcast, from riots to giants to all sorts of things in between. But real quick before we get going, Ron, a mention here at the top of the show, the latest Super Studcast, Super Studcast number 21, parts one and two available right now for patrons of the Studcast at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Here, Brutus the Barber Beefcake and... Ron's second cousin, Roy Lee Welch, share their memories and their tales of their time in Southeastern wrestling, of a young Hulk Hogan, and so much more. We're going to talk a little bit more about this later in the show. But once again, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. But Ron, on the topic of studcast, where are we going this week right here on the studcast? Well, we're going to close out the summer of 1975, uh, Southeastern wrestling's first summer, obviously. Uh, I'm going to settle my lawsuit with the man who was injured by Dale Lewis on March 23rd, 1975 in the $1,000 challenge match that Dale was doing every night with the fans from the audiences all over the Southeast after he arrived in Southeastern Wrestling on January 3rd of 1975. Uh, In this same week, uh, I'm going to unearth my last artifact on the University of Tennessee's archaeological dig near Manchester, Tennessee. Uh, that's going to happen the last week in August, 1975. We're going to break down the card, the results, the TV, and the payoff uh, of the last house of the summer on August 29th, 1975. Then we're going to talk about the worst injury so far in my career on the television show the next day on August 30th, 1975, and how that injury 
was going to affect my health, business, and future. And uh, in in the first fall, for my new company of Southeastern Wrestling. So we've got a lot of a lot of different subjects to talk about today, and uh, I think I'll just jump right into it, Brian, if it's okay. Yeah, get going, Ron. All right, so let's begin today's studcast with a quick look back at what happened on March 23rd, 1975 at Chilhowee Park in Knoxville. Uh, Dale Lewis had started full-time for me on January 3rd when I brought him in on TV with a suit uh, and a $1,000 bill taped to his lapel. Uh, and uh, he had a lot of questions about what's this all about, and then I told him I'd like for him to shoot with fans. And uh, I was determined to prove the old-time wrestling fans and new fans in Knoxville as well that wrestlers were much more than just great talkers and creators of chisels. Uh, they, they'd had a lot of Ron Wright and... Uh, and they, a lot of fans had that uh, determination or that impression that that's what wrestling was all about. And uh, Dale's certainly going to present it to him in a different form. Uh, Dale had an awesome amateur wrestling career, obviously. Uh, and I knew he was perfect pro for this job. He had the perfect disposition to win all the shoots, but never end up hurting anybody. Uh, that all changed on Friday, March 23rd, 1975, when Danny Hodge was standing next to me upstairs in the Jacobs building watching one of these $1,000 challenge matches with Dale uh, from, with a fan from the crowd. Uh, this fan made a critical mistake, though, that probably would have never been a problem had it not been for the wrestler that was standing next to me watching uh, rather than the wrestler actually in the ring. So uh, I wish to heck that... Uh, that it had been in a different situation, but the, the Mark tried to, fic, to stick his fingers in uh, Dale Lewis's eyes and soon afterward tried to hit Dale with a punch. Uh, Dale didn't get, didn't get upset. He wasn't the type to get too upset. Uh, continued the match as if nothing had happened, but Danny was not going to let a disrespectful move from a Mark go unpunished. He screamed down there at Dale, stomp him in the face. And, uh, and he screamed so loud from upstairs that you could hear him all over the building. Lewis just continued on with the match as if he didn't hear Danny, but Danny was not going to settle for that. He started downstairs to the ring, and when he started down there, I started screaming, no, Danny, no, Danny. Uh, but by the time Danny arrived at the ring, the mark had thrown a punch at Lewis. Danny saw that on his way down. Then he was really mad. Uh, Danny got really close to the apron of the ring, and he's screaming at Dale now, says, you know, stomp him in the face. And uh, Dale's trying to ignore Danny's command. And at that point, he'd taken the guy down, and he was in the process of pinning him. In fact, the referee had already gotten to a two count. And uh, and then uh, in his mind, uh, this guy had to be hurt. Danny wasn't going to let it go. The ref was starting to, com to count the mark out uh, again. And uh, Danny, uh, now on his feet, just a few feet away from Dale, actually, left no doubt about what happened, what he wanted to happen. And he screamed, if you don't stomp him in the face, I'm coming in there for you. Uh, and he pointed at Dale to make it, to emphasize the fact. Uh, I knew right then that me and my new wrestling company were in trouble. Danny Hodge was one of the most dangerous people on earth to have a problem with. And Dale knew that as much as any other wrestler alive. Without hesitation, Dale got up off the mark at the count of two, and, uh, and I had just enough time to scream from upstairs to Dale, no, but it was too little too late. Dale's big old size 14 foot slammed across the mark's face, blood shot across the ring. Dale calmly covered the bloody man again, and this time he was finally counted out. 
And he was out in more ways than one, unconscious and bleeding badly. Uh, Dale left the mark there, started back to the dressing room, and Danny just jumped in behind him, still berating him all the way back up to the dressing room. I don't know what more he expected him to do, but he still wasn't happy with the results of it. Uh, so the little whole harmless agreement that my attorney had drawn up for me and the mark had signed before the match turned out to be worthless. Uh, Southeastern Wrestling and I were both sued for 100000 that's a hundred thousand total. Uh, I was individually and as a corporation. I gave Danny a notice that night, but it wasn't going to change things. Uh, Dale Lewis left my company a couple of weeks later. We had talked about this in prior studcast, concerned he was going to be sued as well. You know, Danny was thinking he was going to get sued, so was Dale concerned about the same thing. So now, almost five months later to the day, my new attorney. And and, I, and this guy did not write up that bad agreement, uh, the bad uh, hold harmless agreement. And he, he was a much better attorney. And he gave me the name, the address, and the phone number for the guy who had been injured. Uh, and one of the reasons I had turned babyface was be able to maybe convince this injured man that it was not my fault, which it clearly wasn't my fault, nor in actuality was it Dale's fault. But uh, me and my company were going to pay anyway. It didn't make any difference. And uh, and I was going to do my best to see if I could work out some type of settlement with this guy. I contacted the guy and set up a meeting with him. Don't remember his name. Wish I did. Uh, but we met at, of all places, a Greyhound bus station in downtown Knoxville. And we met on August the 23rd, 1975, exactly five months to the day after the incident had happened. I cannot remember his name, the guy's name, as I said before, but we talked about the incident for a couple of hours over a late afternoon lunch that I purchased, and uh, and the only talking point I had was the fact uh, concerning the the guy was the that he made two mistakes: the move he made to try to stick his finger in Dale's eyes, and the attempted punch that that didn't work for him. And he surprisingly agreed with me that it had been a mistake. And it turned out that the guy was a huge fan and kept telling me most of the two hours about how much he wanted me to kick the assassin's ass that I was now programmed against. So I finally got up enough guts to ask what the guy would take to settle a case. And obviously he wouldn't commit to a figure. So I offered a cash settlement as low ball a figure as I could possibly even consider to start negotiations at $5,000. I soon realized just how big a fan this guy was. And, uh, and when we started talking, I could see that he didn't just say no. Uh, And then he, you know, uh, I knew he was a big fan. I decided, well, to that 5,000, I'll just uh, throw in a free ringside seat for every Knoxville match for as long as Southeastern wrestling's in Knoxville, you get a free seat. Uh, It was basically all he needed i mean he was like uh you know it was really amazing to me just five thousand dollars in this ringside seat forever uh was a fabulous deal for me and uh we had anticipated my attorney and i had already talked and anticipated that if we reached some type of settlement it'd be great if we had the document there and we could get it put into the fill in the blanks basically and see if we could get the whole thing signed and done uh, and you know, me sitting there with the document anyway, uh, I, I offered the guy the opportunity and he was able, we were able to fill in everything except for the free ringside seat. 
uh, and obviously the money. So I met with the guy one more time following day. I gave him the 5000 in cash. I got the addendum to the settlement for the free ringside seat sign. And I saw that particular fan many times in his front row seat over the next four years. It was the only settlement of this kind I ever handled in my entire time in the wrestling business. Ron, what's it like? I've never had a meeting in a bus station with a stranger, let alone a big wrestler who I'm threatening to sue. What was that like for you? What was that like going to the bus station to meet the stranger who he was a fan? And now here you are, you're there not as the Tennessee stud, but as Ron Welch, as the owner of Southeastern. What was that like for you dealing with a fan at that level? Well, like I said, I'd never done it before and I never did it afterward. Uh, I was uncomfortable. Uh, you know, obviously I wasn't uncomfortable that, that anything bad was going to happen, such as we would get into some type of real brawl or something, but, uh, just a little uncomfortable. And I, I really anticipated that, you know, this is going to cost me a 50,000 at the very least. And, you know, I was so pleased when I said 5,000, I just thought he would, he would basically, I thought he might get up and walk, you know, but he didn't. And then, and then the longer he sat there and he didn't really say no to the 5,000, then I threw in the ringside and oddly enough, that seemed to be a key to key to the puzzle. And, and, uh, he, he went for it. So how, much, was, was, how much was ringside at this point in time? At this time, the ringside were, uh, $3. So, you know, if you, uh, if you run that figure out over a period of say, uh, four years at, at uh, 200, that's probably 200 matches, uh, 200, a little, a little more, uh, 600 bucks, 600 bucks, 600 bucks. Yeah. 600 bucks. You know, I mean, gosh, it was a phenomenal uh, settlement. And, and I think it had a great deal to do with the fact that I had turned babyface. I don't think I would have had that type of result if I had still been a heel and gone there as a heel. Uh, and I was glad to see that he was watching the TV because it made the whole thing a lot easier for me uh, than it would have been otherwise, I think. So, and we got one more piece of the summer puzzle that has to be finished at this point, and that's my archaeological dig that had now come to an end. The last week in August was also the last week in the University of Tennessee's summer schedule. My wife and I met with the entire crew uh, down in Manchester, Tennessee, on Thursday, August 28th at the site, uh, and uh, there was a little celebration there, and uh, oddly enough, the the only person that received anything for his work for the summer was me because I had the best plot for the entire summer. And they gave me a gold plated little trowel and uh, as a reward for the discoveries, my plot uh, had that summer. And, uh, and it was by far the most productive one of the entire dig. Uh, my wife received her extra credit and she graduated from the university of Tennessee, uh, the following week. And she enrolled, in law school and began those classes in the second week of September, 1975. I'd done what I told her I would do. And I spent most, almost all of the summer supporting her and her attempt to graduate and to move on to law school. Uh, it would all turn out to be in vain as it worked out because she's going to meet somebody in the first two weeks of law school. And, uh, and she's going to decide that she wants to go a different direction in life. And, uh, and it's crazy how the good Lord works sometimes because uh, turning what perceived, what is perceived sometimes as the end uh, is something much better off than what you had to begin with. So, uh, you know, it worked out pretty good in that direction. But uh, 
Uh, after almost six years of marriage, there I was, a single man again, uh, one of the most recognizable faces in East Tennessee at that point, and soon totally focused on my wrestling business, where it should have been long before it was. Well, hold on now. You're a single guy now. You're totally focused on the wrestling business? Well, you know, you got stuff to do at night, you know, and you do have, after the matches are over, you know, a beer or, or a drink somewhere is not uh, out of the question. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I wasn't a bad looking guy. So, so you know, I, I became, well, let's say it this way, put it this way. I became pretty popular within the next year. And, uh, and that, and that stayed that way for, I was single this for about uh, four years at that point was a pretty lengthy period of time. Do you think it's but, fair to say that this is truly when you became the Tennessee stud? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, people like that name, but, uh, you know, I realized then that women really paid a lot of attention to that name, maybe more <laughs> so than guys, you know? So, so I, you know, I, I was really kind of patting myself on the back, so that's not a pretty bad, that's not a bad name to have chosen, man. You know, I didn't really anticipate when I picked that name that I was going to end up single, but I was single at that point, and and uh, we moved on with our lives, and uh, and uh, she's happier for it, and, and probably I was too, and that's the way things just work out sometimes. So let's take a look at the card and the results for Friday night, August 29, 1975, at Chilhowee Park. Uh, Steve Kovacs was in the first match with Sputnik Monroe, and it was a very good opening match because those two guys were both veterans. It ended up with a victory for Sputnik, who would go back in the only tag match on the card to lead his new Avenger team from California later on in the evening. Second match was another great match with Norvell Austin making his Southeastern wrestling debut against Les Thatcher. This one was a 30-minute time limit draw. Uh, wow, Norvell was so good. I had forgotten. I hadn't seen him since 1971, and he had really, really improved a lot. Uh, I, I knew that he was a great worker, uh, but I just having the opportunity to stand up on uh, and and watch that match that night was uh, really, really good for me. And, and I knew that this if I could keep him, he's going to be a guy that's going to be a great heel for me for a long time. And uh, oddly enough, I was able to keep him pretty well for for a pretty decent amount of time. Uh, so the third match was that special return tag match with the two young Avengers from California. Uh, managed by Sputnik Monroe that had both been chiseled from the Friday before, returning for their tag match in the five-team tournament against Ron Wright and Don Wright, in which they had been busted by Ron Wright by his chisel. Uh, this was another bloody tag, same as the chisel match from the Friday before. This time, however, Sputnik's going to lead the young team, and he really leads them by, he manages somehow to get Don Wright out on the floor, and he busts Don Wright, uh, he don't use a chisel, but he has his own chisel of some kind. And Ron and Don Wright kind of ends up bleeding before anybody else in the ring is. And uh, it was uh, something similar to the Ron Wright deal, uh, except uh, this time it came from Monroe and it backfired a little bit. And Don Wright happened to be the guy that took the took the the worst part of it. Wright's got their second win in a row against the California boys. Those boys were leaving the territory. It was their last night, and uh, the crowd loved this one again. And I was sorry to see them leave. I liked the boys. They had great attitudes, but I had a couple of very good heel teams waiting in the wings for their shot. Uh, Rock Hunter and Tommy Sigler were again in the singles action against each other in the fourth match, and Rock Hunter would again get a victory over Sigler. 
I was in only my second single match versus the Assassin since becoming a babyface. It was a no time limit, no disqualification, winner takes all match, and it was the main event. I won the match, and the Tennessee Athletic Commission had already forced a three-team, one-night round-robin tournament for the new tag team champions. That was the team of Rock Hunter and the Assassin that had won it the week before, but they didn't like the outcome of it. Uh, nobody really liked the outcome of it. It was very controversial, and the Athletic Commission stepped in again and said, next week, you're going to have to, those two guys will have to defend against two teams on Friday, September 5th, 1975. Uh, another unusual situation. Since they had won uh, underhandedly, the Athletic Commission decides that you're going to have to defend against two different teams to be able to keep that title. So, uh, And I kind of liked that idea. It was a pretty good idea, actually. Well, Ron, that was the August 29th show at Chilhowee Park. We still have to figure out how we're going to get there. What did you do on TV the week before to get there, which would have been August 23rd, 1975? Okay, so on, on August the 23rd, on Saturday, we open up with a new Avenger tag team from California with a new manager, Sputnik Munro. Uh, they're leaving town, but uh, it wasn't a lose-or-leave town match. Nobody knows, and I have an opportunity to use them on TV, and I take that opportunity again. And they take on the team of Rocky Smith and DeVoy Brunson. Uh, Sputnik worked out a few very good tag team moves with, with the new team, and they, and they look very good. Uh, in their win over DeVoy Brunson. I just went ahead and put them over. Uh, Wrights joined Les at the set following the tag match with their opponents uh, for the next Friday night, and uh, Ron Wright brought along his chisel. Two brothers had to compliment Sputnik and uh, the changes he had already made in their opponents from the following Friday. Uh, Wrights promised the fans would no longer have to watch the Young Punks after next Friday, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, they were going down on the next Friday on the 28th because these boys were done in Southeastern by next Friday. And uh, it was the truth. They certainly didn't, didn't make uh, fans aware of something that was going to happen. Those boys were gone, and uh, and they pretty well beat the hell out of them uh, on the Friday night, the uh, 28th. So uh, Sputney brought his boys out for a two-minute interview. Now, this is the Saturday before the August 28th event. So he brings his boys out. He makes that two-minute interview. He took the entire time, and he made great points about the age difference in the old men, as he called them, the rights, and his pretty young things from California. He bragged that he only needed another few days, and his boys would be ready to make fools out of those two old bald-headed hillbillies. And he was pretty close to right about that. Uh, you know, they, they didn't look too good at that point, uh, but uh, they still uh, – they still weren't able to take a, take the better of the two right boys. Ron, Sputnik Monroe as a manager. At this point in his life, he's been wrestling a long time. He worked for your father so many years earlier. Are you thinking that it's time to wind him down? You want to still use him as a mouthpiece? Any thoughts about Sputnik and where he was at this point in his career? I loved Sputnik uh, and because of his history with my dad and because of the things he had accomplished with my father, I felt really close to Sputnik. I grew up with him as a young guy. Uh, he used to hang around our house quite a bit. And, you know, he was a great, great person. Uh, and I wanted to help Sputnik. Uh, he's in the latter part of his career and it was harder for him to get in the ring and harder for him to work. He was still taking big bumps. He was working his butt off. Uh, it just made me appreciate him even more. I would have given him the the if I'd have kept those guys, I would have definitely uh, made Sputnik their their manager. 
it made sense. They needed a manager. They couldn't talk. And uh, he would have really probably uh, it made them a much better team if he'd had some control of them for very long. But uh, as, as the case was, Sputnik was working in that time frame out of Memphis, and he was just coming for me every once in a while on Fridays. So uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't put him in a much better spot. Uh, second match on the TV featured the new heel star, Norvell Austin, on his Southeastern Wrestling TV debut. Austin was very convincing with his first victory, and he, and he worked with a great worker, a guy who is becoming an even better worker every time I see him, Tommy Rich. And uh, Norvell beats him with his flying, his patented flying headbutt off the ropes, which he made that headbutt look so good. He'd dive in the air and connect heads with a guy, guy coming to meet him. Their bodies would both go flying opposite directions, and it was a nice-looking finish. Uh, and, he gen- and he then joined the man he would be facing in his first Knoxville match the following Friday night, Les Thatcher. He goes down and sits at the set. He did a great interview as he had learned to do many years earlier when he and Sputnik had dominated wrestling teams across the South. They had been a phenomenal team in the early 70s uh, in lots of different territories in the South. Uh, uh, Right away, uh, Norvell put Les on the defense by making Les explain why he was both a wrestler and a commentator. Uh, Then he laughed out loud as his own assessment that Les was a much better commentator than a wrestler. He said to Les at the end of the interview, you've always been better at running your mouth than backing it up. And he walked away before Les could respond. He got over very good, I thought, for his first time on TV. He would return in the next segment to personality profile, perfect for introducing new stars. So Norvell is on the personality profile. He comes decked out. Uh, The profile is done in the morning hours uh, before Anybody comes in the studio, it's the first thing we do for every program. We pre-recorded almost all of them. And Norville is decked out, boy, for the personality profile. And uh, and so Les is uh, very good with these five-minute segments. He's well aware of Norvell's accomplishments at a young age, especially his and Sputnik's long run as tag team champions out of Nashville as far back as 1971. He followed that trail and then found out that Norvell had recently finished a very successful run in Florida as a singles wrestler. Norvell had been working primarily as a single star since he and Sputnik split up in 1973. Toward the end of the profile, after Norvell had already set goals for himself as a future Southeastern heavyweight champion and also a future Southeastern tag champion, both he and Les were surprised by an early arriving Sputnik Monroe that interrupted the personality profile at the perfect time with a big hug for his former partner. And he and Norvell had had a tremendous run across the South as tag team champions. These two had one of the longest and most successful reigns in the history of the South, probably. Uh, You could tell by the way these two stars hugged each other that their relationship was still very close. Les picked up on it and ended the profile with some special thoughts about how close tag partners get to each other when they survive long runs as champions. And you could detect a tear or two in the eyes of those two close friends uh, when Les ended the profile. Uh, still, They were still hugging each other. It was one of those moments you rarely got to see between wrestlers on TV. And another reason these, these five-minute personality profiles each show 
became so popular with fans across the southeastern United States. You would see things happen in these profiles that you would never normally see on an interview. Well, Ron, I always ask you, what do you follow that up with? How do you come out of the personality profile? This is kind of the midway point in the television show. Third match was the Assassin versus Rocky Smith. Rocky Smith's the former Inferno, hell of a worker. Uh, it's a great TV match. The the Assassin had a hard time handling him at, at some points. I mean, Rocky was really firing on on uh, on old Jody, and uh, wow, they they were really at it at one another. And uh, and Rocky Smith got got after him, uh, and the Assassin uh, uh, pretty much came down to the ringside. Uh, Rock Hunter had to come down to ringside during the match because uh, it looked like Rocky was about going to beat the assassin. And uh, while and then when he got down to ringside, uh, he jumped on the apron uh, to draw the uh, Rocky Smith over there to where he was. And the referee obviously went over there too. And uh, the assassin then loaded his mask behind the Inferno's back, behind Rocky Smith's back, and uh, also behind the referee's back. And um, he put him away with his big-time headbutt. You know, obviously, when Rocky Smith came back, he'd been distracted. Uh, the, he, the mask is already loaded, and uh, that's the assassin's finish, man. It's, it's just going to go. You're going to go down when that happened. Both the assassin and Hunter uh, filled the third interview segment that followed. They started with their individual matches the following Friday, Rock Hunter versus Tommy Siegler and the assassin versus me with a no-time limit, no-DQ clause. Les finished the segment with a big surprise for Rock Hunter that was to be the last match on the TV show. He was in it, but he didn't know, obviously, who he was wrestling. Hunter had won the new Southeastern TV Championship from Tommy Siegler two Friday nights ago on August 15th at Chilhowee Park. Siegler had held the title only six days when he lost it. Rock Hunter had brought the huge championship trophy out to the set for the interview and bragged on it several times during the interview. As Assassin and Hunter got ready to leave the set, Les asked Rock Hunter if he was aware he had to defend that pretty trophy there today on the last match of the show. And Hunter went off, and so did the Assassin. I mean, what kind of company is this? Who do they think they are? I mean, you can't just set up something like that. Nobody's told him even he's defending it. So the Assassin's out there trying to uh, defend his buddy, uh, but it didn't make any difference. They screamed for about 30 seconds before Les... Uh, who was going to, uh, asking Les uh, who's going to get the match? They was said, you know, finally they got down to, well, who's he wrestling? And uh, and uh, so Les said, obviously the former champion who's due a return match. Well, the crowd popped. I mean, obviously now he's going to wrestle Tommy Siegler for the TV title again on television. So uh, Les called out Siegler's name and the assassin and the hunter at the same moment, and Siegler entered the. St- Entered the studio just about the time Les was saying, you're going to be wrestling Tommy Siegler. And went right straight to the ring. Uh, pandemonium. I mean, uh, everybody in the building was on their feet. Uh, the assassin and Hunter screaming, and, uh, and Les throws it away uh, to the ring announcer. So we're in the, we're in the ring now, uh, last match of the day. So, and it was off to a great start, obviously. Everybody's on their feet. And you could hardly hear the introductions as the huge trophy was taken from the champion, Rock Hunter, and placed in the middle of the ring. Sasson was, was forced by the referee to leave the ringside completely, and the bell was rung. This 15-minute-plus match was tremendous. The fans were really into it, and obviously the TV championship meant something already. That surprised me. 
You know, you could tell there was some kind of a championship involved because of the way the crowd was reacting. So just as Rock Hunter had helped his friend, the assassin, to win the preceding match, the assassin showed up this time to do the same for Hunter. Ziegler had a headlock on Hunter, and Hunter fired Ziegler into the ropes and charged in after him. Ziegler came off the ropes and smashed into Hunter headfirst, just as the referee was passing behind Hunter. Ziegler went flying back through the ropes and onto the floor. Hunter went flying back into the referee and down face first on the mat from the double collision he had had with with Ziegler in the front and the referee behind. The referee went down on his face and rolled and fell off the apron to the floor. All three men in the ring just seconds earlier were now down, two of them on the concrete and Hunter still in the ring by himself. The assassin appeared from nowhere, took something from his tights, shoved it into his mask as he had done on the match before where Hunter uh, got involved and where he had beat uh, Rocky Smith. So uh, Hunter regained his feet in the ring and he grabbed Ziegler entering the ring from the floor and full Nelson him and started forcing him across the ring toward the assassin. Uh, assassin was climbed up on the apron, obviously, and uh and I entered the studio just about this time, and the referee slowly getting to his feet on the floor, and I just kind of boosted him on into the ring. And uh, and I went around one ring post to where the assassin's standing on the apron, waiting for Hunter to get Siegler over there to him. And I grabbed the assassin's leg from behind on the apron. And, uh, that, and the assassin had no choice but to turn his attention to me. Uh, the assassin kicked me backwards as Siegler was reversing the full Nelson on Hunter. But the assassin never saw him reverse the full Nelson. He still thinks that Hunter's got the full Nelson on Siegler. So the assassin, after he kicks me back, he turned back toward the ring, but he was still looking at me on the floor to make sure I was there. And uh, and Siegler just put perfectly placed Rock Hunter's head into, into Jody's hands. Jody's Jody's thinking he's got Siegler by the head and he's actually got the he's got his buddy by the head. So the referee's struggling to get back on his feet inside the ring and uh, the assassin grabs a double handful of hair and he quickly, without looking, slams that loaded mask into his best friend Rock Hunter's head. The studio audience obviously went crazy. Hunter went down hard. Uh, Siegler covered Hunter. The ref started to count, and the assassin finally realized his mistake that he'd headbutted the wrong guy, and he scrambled to get back into the ring, to get into the ring for the first time, actually. And I grabbed his legs from behind, and he was caught hanging over the second rope when the referee counted the three count. The crowd popped again, and the Southeastern TV Championship was back in the hands of Tommy Siegler, as it had been two Saturdays earlier. I bolted into the ring to begin the celebration, in a studio that was going wild. I mean, the fans were almost in the ring, and the assassin and Hunter tried to stop the referee from leaving the ring after counting Hunter out. The ref refused to change the decision. The announcer, Phil Rainey, declared Tommy Siegler the new Southeastern TV champion, and uh, the crowd and Tommy and I all had a big celebration together. It was a pretty darn good ending to, to that program. All we had left was the interview. And in that last interview, it's Tommy and I, and we talk about our singles matches for the next Friday night. And uh, we took a little victory lap after we did the interview and time ran out, uh, slapping fans on the back and letting them slap t- Tommy and I on the back and uh, carried that trophy uh, among them. And, uh, and uh, actually, uh, Les closed the show and we closed with us still out there and the fans mobbing us. And the show went off the air with that 
I, I, I love that close. Uh, it made me want to make sure I, I did something like that um, many more times afterward. Perfect close. And how did the show do, Ron? How did that Friday night show, which would have been August 28th, 1975, how did it do? It did well. It uh, We drew just under the 4,000 fans. We'd kind of been averaging since July 4th. Gross house was about $12,000 with a total payroll of about 3300 The bottom boys, Norvell Austin, uh, not a bottom boy, but in this particular card, he's kind of a bottom boy. Uh, Austin and Les Thatcher and Sputnik and Kovacs and the California Angels, Ron and Don Wright, that whole group of guys got $275, which is not a bad payoff. And I took no payoff again, as I usually did. And the top three guys, the Assassin, Rock Hunter, and Tommy Siegler, got 310 each. So, you know, they only made about uh, basically $40 more than uh, than the guys that worked those earlier matches. And I like to do that sometimes. I felt like uh, if you had a good crew, everybody had good matches. Uh, you didn't uh, you didn't make a huge pay difference between the top and the bottom match, and this turned out to be one of those examples in which I felt everybody on that card had contributed, and uh, I didn't feel like that the top three guys should be making a heck of a lot more money than the others. Well, Ron, this is usually the part in the show where we take our break and tell the listeners a little bit about the Super Studcast, but I asked you if we could do something a little different this week because... The reaction to the latest Super Studcast, Super Studcast number 21, has been through the roof, and actually several listeners have asked questions, and I know I have a few questions, so if you don't mind, if we could take a minute or two here and just uh, address a couple things from the Super Studcast, and obviously your cousin, Roy Lee Welch, and Brutus the Barber Beefcake, or Dizzy Boulder, as he was for you in Southeastern, both talked about the early years of Hulk Hogan. I'm curious, your remembrances of the first time you met Hulk Hogan and your early impressions of him. Did you ever see him in the crowd when you wrestled in Tampa? Uh, no, no, I didn't. And I'd never seen him before. Uh, he was already there in Southeastern at that point. This is 1979. At this point, I'm back in Knoxville uh, to, to for a war. I'm in the middle of uh, the 1975, 1979 Knoxville war. And uh, I get a call from the booker, my booker, Louis Tillet, says, uh, hey, Ron, you need to come see this guy. I need you to work with him and put him over in Dothan. And I fly into Dothan, Alabama, and it's my first time to see him. He did not look anything like people that recognize Hulk Hogan would expect him to look. He had black hair instead of blonde hair. He had black hair on most of his body. He had a very uh, unique-looking shaved chest that went down to his, his uh, waistline. Uh, he just, he looked totally different. Besides being a monster in size, he had he had something about him, though, that I recognized uh, at first look. And and that's basically what we have in this Super Stud cast. Uh, I mean, uh, Brutus does such a good job of explaining uh, his relationship with Terry Boulder, uh, who, that's who Hulk is. The night I wrestled him, his name is Terry Boulder. And, uh, you know, that uh, And then we were able to mix in that. I really liked the number 21 because we were able to mix that in with Roy Lee's reactions. Roy Lee having been the guy left in charge there in Pensacola that witnessed the growth of Hulk Hogan uh, and witnessed the growth of the Brutus the Barber at the, the same time and, uh, and, and kind of ran that business for me. Uh, so Roy was a very busy guy and, and, uh, 
this that that's particular super stud cast number 21 to me is really really a good one uh and we've gotten a lot of tremendous comments from fans who really enjoyed the brutus beefcake part say they'd never heard that good an interview with him before no it was the best interview he's ever done clearly you you and him you guys had obviously great chemistry because of your relationship and everything you did for him early in his career it's the best interview i ever heard with him clearly yeah, well, see, I've, I've never heard any interviews with him, so I, I never was privy to that. But uh, it's nice hearing uh, hearing you say that. I know uh, you know what you're talking about, and and I was really amazed to see so many fans have that same reaction. But uh, uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a great one. It had a lot of focus on Southeastern in Pensacola, uh, especially that last hour and a half with Roy Lee, who was himself a uh, former United States junior heavyweight champion. Pretty darn good in the ring as well. Ron, before we get back to the studcast, let me ask you one question that I did hear from one of the listeners of the Super Studcast. Even though he was young in his career, and even though in the summertime he was in Memphis, and you had had early success with Hulk Hogan or Terry the Hulk Boulder early in his career, do you think it would have made any difference at all to the wrestling war in Knoxville if you had had a young Terry the Hulk Boulder on the roster there? Uh, yes. Yeah, I would have to say yes. Because he had such a different look. Uh, he had that, he had that something about him that, charisma. He, he just had charisma. And uh, and I could have used it. Uh, you know, we what we did is we fought that war in Knoxville with basically the same crew that had been there uh, when the war began. We made some changes during the course of the war, but we did not change dramatically the the people in the crew. And yes, he would have had some impact on it. Uh, he's He was just bearing mind now less than a year in the business. Uh, he was never a great worker. Uh, and he certainly wasn't at this point a year in the business. But he had a different look about him. And I think if I had been able to book him, I never had the opportunity to book him. Uh, Louis Tillette booked him. I might have handled him a little different than Louis did, and I might have gotten more miles out of him. Well, you could hear more about this period of time, 1979 in Pensacola. Hear more about Southeastern. Hear more about growing up in Tampa. Hear about the Georgia War and the Knoxville War from Roy Lee Welch. Super Studcast number 21 has something for everyone. It's available right now, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. You get in the door for only two ninety nine. It's the best deal in wrestling. But, Ron, let's get back to 1975. Where are we going now, 1975 in Knoxville? Well, let's discuss a little bit about what's happening as we enter the fall of 1975. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of made uh, the, uh, the Southeastern wrestling to fledgling territory, uh, trying to get off the ground at this point, uh, it's in a potentially disa- disastrous uh, position here with what's going on. And, uh, you know, maybe the rest of this program will kind of cover what is happening, uh, the unique situation that's occurring in Knoxville during this point that uh, could have put an end to Southeastern wrestling before it ever got off the ground. Uh, so, uh, you know, we weren't through. Southeastern Wrestling wasn't finished with its first year of operation. And, and for people out there that, that, that know businesses, new businesses and new companies that get started, about 90% of them fail. And, uh, you know, this 
company of Southeastern Wrestling could have been one of those 90 percenters. And, uh, and we'll discuss a little bit here about how that could have happened. Uh, in order to do what we needed to, to, to look back on, uh, in order to be able to discuss this properly, we need to look back on the last 10 months uh, since we opened the doors at Southeastern Wrestling, the last two months of 1974 and the first eight months of 1975. So let's jump back, Brian, to, to uh, October 25th, 1974, the first night I ever wrestled in Knoxville, and the night I took over uh, and changed the name of the company to Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, when I arrived there, uh, and I took it over from John Kazana, actually, who I, that's who I bought out, uh, and I really had no idea of how really to run or totally operate a wrestling company. I, I had preconceived notions that I knew something about it, but I really going to find out in these first uh, 10 months here that we're talking about between uh, October 74 and August of 75, how little I do know. And uh, I hate to put it that way, but you know, the, I, in all truthfulness, that's what it was all about. I'd only been in wrestling for slightly over four years. I had no booking experience at all at this point. My promotional experience in wrestling had come from being moved to West Palm Beach, Florida in June of 1971 from Tampa, where other wrestlers lived, so that I could help with the local promotion of West Palm Beach, that market. And occasionally, I would get to run some small cities within the television station signal range. Uh, and... Uh, in none of those cities, including West Palm Beach, did I ever have any booking responsibilities. Uh, the booker always came from Tampa. It came out of Tampa, and it was it was either sometimes it was Leo Garibaldi in the old days, uh, sometimes it was Louis Tillet, sometimes it ended up being Bill Watts. I mean, uh, it had a lot of different bookers that came through, but I was certainly never one of them. I'd spent a significant amount of time in St. Louis during 1973 and 74, as we've discussed in prior super, in prior studcasts. And, uh, and I spent a lot of that time in 73 and 74 with their booker there, Pat O'Connor. And uh, Pat gave me the opportunity to figure finishes for him. Uh, and I was pretty decent at it. And he needed help. You know, he was not very good at figuring finishes. So it was a good spot for me, and it worked out good for Pat O'Connor. And when I arrived in Knoxville in October of 1974, my first night there, every wrestler and every match on that card needed a finish. And uh, they were dependent upon me. <laughs> I'm the owner, you know, uh, to figure out what we're going to do tonight. And what are we going to do next week? And what are we going to do the week after that uh, in this Southeastern Wrestling Company that, that I've, I've developed here and that I have created? And uh, I realized that, dang, I'm really kind of behind the eight ball here. I really have to figure out not only how to figure finishes, uh, how, to, how to work angles, uh, and how to do the program guys together, but I really have to figure out the whole scheme of things and how to deal with these personalities that is what the wrestling business is all about, all the different personalities that you have to talk to and you have to do business with. So I realized that I'd not done the proper due diligence necessary before the purchase of my business. Uh, when I really look back, and that's what we're doing here, really looking back at, at where I failed and the mistakes that I made, I had not asked all the questions nor received all the answers 
that was necessary to be successful. At 26 years of age, I was immediately overwhelmed by my new company's responsibilities, all of the different types of responsibilities, and not just for booking, but to, to handle the, the advertising, to uh, make sure your rings get there uh, from the tallest, from the smallest detail to the biggest. It all had to be handled. I'd given no thought to how I was going to find my, my own wrestlers. <laughs> and that's basically when I took over October of 74, uh, my wrestlers weren't my wrestlers. They came from Nashville. Uh, I didn't even give any thought to, to how I was going to ever get my own wrestlers. How, how would I book them properly? How am I going to keep them long enough for, to become successful, for them to become successful and to make me successful? I knew that John Kazana had been getting his wrestlers for many years from my grandfather, Roy Welch, and his partner, Nick Goulas. But I was not even aware that Roy and Nick got 10% of the gross gate for sending wrestlers to Knoxville. How could I have been so stupid in due diligence not to ask, well, what else comes out of the money each week other than the payroll for the wrestlers? I mean, it just, it, it, I, I'm starting at this point to realize uh, the things that I have failed to do and, and how it may be going to affect me in the future. The the fact that alone that ten percent of the gates gates going to go to to for a booking fee uh, in to Nashville that fact alone could have sunk me. So I managed to eliminate that twenty year relationship between the Nashville office and the Casana brothers, uh, and ending that relationship uh, did not provide me good talent to operate. And just the opposite, it forced me to make my own way. And that proved to be a constant thorn in my side for the first few months until I figured out that, yeah, Ron, you're capable of doing it. You will find the guys. So I was lucky to have some pretty good local talent willing to work for me that were not working full time for anyone else. Ron and Don Wright, Rocky Smith, uh, Les Thatcher, Nelson Royal, Dale Lewis, Dutch Mantell, John Foley. You know, and a lot of others that's going to, you know, uh, Ricky Gibson and Jimmy Golden. And, you know, I'm going to be able to lay my hands on some darn good workers. Uh, but there were a lot of holes to fill in Southeastern wrestling back at that time frame. And uh, I, I was really fighting an uphill battle. I had run three Coliseum shows in the first six months of 1975 to gauge where I was as a company and how important the Coliseum was going to be to the future of Southeastern wrestling. I had discovered enough to know that the Coliseum was going to be too expensive to grow my company there. I'm going to have to grow my company in the park or in some place that's less expensive because I'm never going to make it in the Coliseum. I, I've got to build the audience and, uh, and uh, you know, that takes time and a whole lot of effort. I had no more dates planned in the Coliseum as of September 1st, 1975. I knew I was going to be confined to Chilhowee Park facilities while building toward the Coliseum. I'd suffered through a long summer of being outside in the amphitheater, and unless there was rain. Uh, and I was lucky that we had to move inside the smaller building only three times during that summer. We could have had rain 10 times out of those potential, uh, what's that, 12 weeks, you know, but uh, we did not get a whole lot of rain. I was fortunate 
to have survived as well and to have the opportunity to have that facility that held four to five, 6,000 people rather than that small building where I was really hard pressed to put 2,000 in. So until June of 1975, I was not even aware that I would be booted out of Chilhowee Park every year for the first three Fridays in September for the fair. Gosh, due diligence again. It goes back to, you know, I'm, um, as my dad used to say, my dad used to punish my brother and I. He had a, a way of doing it. He would he called it conking your head. And, uh, you know, and you're going to probably, people, when I tell them this, they, they can't hardly believe that somebody would do this to you. But when we did something wrong, he would say, come here, hold your head over here. And he would force us to bend over. And he would take his knuckles. He would make a fist and he would take his knuckles and pound us in the top of our head with his knuckles. And uh, and there were times when he would bust your head and it would bleed. You know, he would hit you hard enough to bust you. And uh, that was, uh, you know, I felt like I should do that to myself when I get to this point. You've been 10 months here. Uh, you didn't even find out that uh, there are going to be three weeks, the, the probably the first three worst three weeks of your entire year, and you're not going to be able to run even in Chilhowee Park. So uh, I had no idea how bad the alternatives were when it came to where I'm going to run. There's got to be another venue, and I started looking at the venues, and I find that they're they're terrible. They're horrible. So, uh, uh, you know, I've explained in recent studcasts how this has, how this is going to adversely affect me. And it really is going to adversely affect me. It made it really, really difficult for me to uh, to uh, assess myself. I, I felt like I needed to, after 10 months here, uh, really sit down and say, how have you done here, honestly? And, uh, and how can you change things here to make them better? Uh, so I'd been drowning in a totally unnecessary lawsuit for five months. <laughs> I, I, it had consumed a great deal of my time, and it caused me much more fear and apprehension of the outcome than anything else. Uh, it also cost me two very good heels, and Danny Hodge and Dale Lewis, within three weeks, they're both gone. You know, how could I let this happen? How could this have happened to me? My problems with my marriage and potential splitting of my home and at least the loss and partial care of my sons, that weighed heavily on my mind every day. So I was about to enter the worst four months of my business each year from September until the new year began uh, in 1976, as it's going to be during this time frame. It was an absolutely critical period of time that I'm stepping into. Okay, Ron, well, you said you didn't do your due diligence, but on the other side of it, are you at all upset that Kazana didn't give you a heads up about these things? Do you think Kazana, even though you had a good relationship with him, do you think he purposely didn't tell you these things to sit back and wait for that week where you couldn't deliver the $500? What are your thoughts on Kazana and how aware he made you of all of these things? I, I think it was totally 100% my responsibility to ask the appropriate questions and to get all the answers that I didn't have. And, uh, you know, I was young. I, I was just enthusiastic as hell about this opportunity. And geez, I can't wait. I know I'm going to do great. And, you know, but uh, 
Uh, I don't think he uh, intentionally left things out. I think he is waiting for me to ask the right questions. Uh, I think he could have uh, very easily at the end of uh, some of our conversations, lengthy conversations, have said, uh, you know, Ron, you haven't asked about this and you haven't asked about that. Uh, that would have been very helpful for me. It wouldn't have put me in the position I found myself in going into September of 1975, uh, having made a bunch of mistakes. Uh, so, yeah, yeah I, I don't blame John Kazana uh, because it was it was me. It was my responsibility to be uh, business. That was business, and uh, and 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 it was it probably in in. And as the years went by, was a very valuable lesson for me, uh, and uh, and I never I never handled my business as poorly as I did in that first ten months when I went to Knoxville. So I want to kind of close her up here a little bit, uh, uh, you know. And I and I hate to sound like doom and gloom, uh, but what laid in front of me uh, in the next four months of of 1975 was just very nasty. I mean, uh, I felt good about my turn from baby face to heel and the fact that it had worked and, and I knew I was going to get over uh, and I was happy with that. Uh, what I didn't know and what was the worst news of all of everything I have mentioned here is that I was about to get by far my worst wrestling injury ever on August 29th, 1975. And uh, on that day, it was a television day. Uh, actually we just talked about August the 28th. So next day I go to TV on the 29th of August and, uh, I wrestle against on television, uh, Frank Morrell. And, uh, and I, I was going to injure one of the most painful areas of my body, uh, the clavicle or the collarbone area. Uh, don't know if you've ever had an injury there, Brian, but, uh, it's, it, it's, 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 it, and this one, so, you know, this one is different. I, I was going to get a dislocation of what was called, it was what the, what the medical people called the SC joint. It's where the two clavicle bones, your two collarbones meet together underneath your chin in the middle of your body. Okay. It joins there, that joint at the top of that, it joins those two collarbones that run on out to your shoulders, uh, but uh, and then from the SC joint is your sternum that that that's a big bone that protects the center of your chest that runs down there, basically the bottom of your chest. I was going to get dropped on my head and landed on with the full weight of a 250 pound man. My chin was shoved through the, that SC joint, it's called, on the right side of my body where your collarbone joins the other collarbone at the bottom of your throat. Uh, so, you know, for fans that you're trying to, I know this is hard to picture what I'm talking about, but if you put your fingers just below your chin at the bottom of your throat, uh, you're going to feel two little knots there. Uh, that's where your SC joint is. And that's where your collarbones, uh, your clavicles 
connect to that joint and it runs down your sternum. So if you put your fingers at the bottom of your throat, below your face, you'll feel where those two collarbones join the SC joint at the top of your sternum bone that runs downward to the bottom of your chest. The impact of all the weight, both his and mine, it's not just his weight that's landing on me uh, and my head is pointed straight down into my body, but it's my weight too. And it was enough to drive the clavicle completely out of the socket that held it and into the chest cavity. Uh, normal collarbone injuries are rarely repairable and extremely painful. This injury was far more devastating than any normal collarbone injury. This pain was never ending. And the prognosis for recovery at the hospital is uh, you'll never wrestle again. You know, you, you because you can't get that bone to, to rise back to where it was, you know, uh, that the other, the surgery, I don't know. Uh, I didn't, I, I wouldn't want to have had the surgery anyway, but, uh, you know, the prognosis wasn't good. The only way it really could have been worse is if I had broken my neck instead of that collarbone injury. And obviously there's, that would have been worse, but, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, you know, I know, Brian, this is this is not a great place to end the stud cast, but we're going to dive into the fall of 1975 next week. And, and believe me, that was not a pretty time for me. This injury sets the stage for me to have to wrestle six very important matches in the next eight weeks. And none of them are going to be for my own company. Uh, and I'm going to make those shows with this type of collarbone situation. Uh, I'm going to be entirely out of action in my own company until Halloween night, 1975. Uh, and this upcoming two-month period of time, it's going to measure me uh, as a man, uh, literally as a man in every way. Well, Ron, as we begin to wrap things up this week on the Studcast, we want to remind everyone that, of course, you're on Facebook. The page, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. Of course, you can also follow the Stud on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at Super Podcasts. And of course, we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever it is that you find your favorite podcasts. And of course, Super Studcast number 21 available right now, parts one and two. Brutus the Barber Beefcake in maybe his best interview of all time. And Roy Lee Welch. Check it out today, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Ron, where are we going next week on the Studcast? Well, you know, I, I've kind of left us in a, in a little bit of a hole here, you know, so... uh and 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 the hole's going to get deeper. Uh, we're going to fall like leaves in this September of 1975. Everything seems to be against me, but I'm about to find out in the fall of 1975 how strong I am. Uh, difficult times uh, around every occur around every corner, and I can't even let anyone know I'm hurt from uh, from the injury because I don't uh, I don't want that word to get out there to the fans. So I'm dealing with a whole lot uh, at this point in 1975. We're going to break into it, though, and, uh, and we're going to, uh, by the time that uh, 1975 closes out, we're going to be back in the Coliseum for another show.
Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.